Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again. Hope you're staying safe and well. My name's Andrew Dunkley and you are listening to episode 195 of the Space Nuts podcast. And with me as always is astronomer in charge, an astronomer at large. I've gone back to the egg. Astronomer at large, (laughs) Professor Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. Hello, Andrew. Yes, still at large. Uh, well, actually, not quite at large. I'm shut up at home, but that's that's all right. I'm at large within my house. Yes, yeah. <laughs> we'll talk about that later because you um, actually got a question uh, yeah. about your situation. So we'll uh, we'll tackle that in our questions segment. Uh, we're also going to look at uh, the possibility of a naked eye comet in our skies uh, in a month or two. Uh, this is um, one that was discovered fairly recently. Uh, one wonders if it will revo- uh, rival that great uh, comet of 2007, Comet McNaught, which I saw. Um, it, was, it was actually at its brightest around Australia Day, and I was at an Australia Day event. And that evening we all went outside and just looked in awe at this thing. It was amazing. So uh, I'm hoping it'll be... Uh, Something like that. Uh, and uh, I love this story. I so love this story. You know, in this uh, age of such modern technology and, and uh, complexity, the InSight lander on Mars. Remember we talked about that and the, um, and, the, and the drill got stuck and they couldn't figure out how to fix it? Well, it's fixed. And the way they fixed it, awesome. <laughs> we'll talk about that soon. Uh, and questions from uh, Josh about the oscillating universe theory. And Paddy wants to know how to take photos through his telescope, uh, which, um, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it's, it's good to be able to look at these amazing things in the universe, but um, even better if you can record them and maybe frame the picture and put it on your wall or something. Um, actually, uh, Mr. McNaught was very good at that. Um We'll uh, we'll talk about all those things today, uh, but first, Fred, a naked eye comet. We we um, I, I remember in 1986, I think it was that uh, I I was uh, very excited to be able to go outside and 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 have a look at the um, Halley's comet, and what a huge disappointment that turned out to be. Uh, it was just a fuzzy ball that you had to squint to see. Uh, yeah, I think uh, people had waited all those years, seven plus decades, uh, to be um, able to see it, and they went, "Oh, well, okay, maybe." Well, next you time. see, if you if you'd read your astronomy books from 1910, when it when it had its last apparition, you would have known that it was going to be a fizzer in 1986. Yeah, but you know how things go. People, uh, (laughs) the stories I heard as a kid was, oh, it just flashed across the sky in seconds, a big fiery ball, which was absolute garbage. Well, and uh, in fact, the thing about Comet Halley, it it caused a sensation in 1910. Um, And if I remember rightly, that was the year that the comet um, actually passed or the Earth passed through the tail of the comet. And uh, uh, because people knew uh, by then that there are some quite complex molecules in in the tails of comets, including cyanide compounds, um, there was terror uh, that we were going to, the Earth was going to pass through this comet's tail, which was laced with cyanide. And and, 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 and it was officially called COVID-1. <laughs> yes, yeah, something like that. Um of course, none of that happened. It was perfectly harmless. But even back then, everybody knew, certainly in the astronomical world, knew that the next apparition in 1986 would be not really worth writing home about because when the comet was at its brightest, it was actually on the opposite side of the sun from the Earth. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it's just a very bad uh, geometry for seeing uh, bright comets. 
which leads us to the, t the current tale of uh, what, what is being called Comet Atlas uh, and um, has some sort of promise uh, of becoming bright. Although I have to say, you mentioned earlier Comet McNaught, which was discovered by Rob McNaught at Siding Spring Observatory in uh, late 2006 and early in 2007 was utterly spectacular. Oh, it wasn't was, it? Yeah, it was phenomenal. Sadly, only from the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah, uh, and, and, you know, we didn't have digital technology like we do now, so nobody had mobile phones and digital cameras in their pockets, so no, not, not right. many private photos. Today, though, no. it could be a different prospect. That's that's right, and certainly, I mean, a lot of the best photos were actually taken by Rob McNaught himself, but yeah. it was uh, night after night it hanging in the western sky with this structure in its tail that was really quite extraordinary. Mm. So um, to, coming back to the present time, we need to preface this discussion by the caveat that applies to all comets. I can't remember who said this, but it was a long time ago. Uh, and it's very appropriate because Mandu's wandering around somewhere at the moment. Uh, the quote <laughs> is, uh, comets are just like cats. They have tails and they do anything they like. Because <laughs> so, um, so you never really know with a comet. Um, the let, let's look at the physics. You, what you've got is a, a basically a, 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 a like an iceberg. Oh, it's come back to my, exactly. Man, yes. <laughs> oh. You mentioned my name. Yes, I did. Yeah. <laughs> um, the. The, 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 the comet is, is like an iceberg, basically a mountain-sized or maybe a mountain-range-sized lump of fairly loosely packed ice with lots of dust in it. Uh, uh, sometimes, I think Halley is it, it's certainly less than 10 kilometres across. Uh, we talked long and uh, in, in great detail a few years ago about um, Comet 67P, Churyum mm. uh, Afgarasimenko, which was visited by the Rosetta spacecraft. Uh, I think that was about, if I remember rightly, a kilometre and a half. It's quite small. I can't remember. Anyway, the, 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 they're not big objects, but what makes them visible and what makes them so bright is that when they get near the sun, and remember they're in very elongated orbits, they come in from way out in the depths of the solar system, uh, pass by the sun, and when they do that, the sun's radiation essentially vaporises the the, the the ice is in the comet, and you get this plasma tail. And actually, and in doing that, because the ices are being vaporised, it loosens the dust, and so you get a, a separate, often a separate dust tail, mm. which is actually a different colour from the plasma tail. A lot of really interesting images now, with as you said, with modern digital technology, we can see all this. So. Um, as it comes in uh, from its, uh, you know, sojourn way out in the far depths of the solar system, uh, it, it comets as they get nearer the sun, they start uh, producing what's called a coma. The coma is the sort of glow of gas around the, uh, around the comet itself, around the comet nucleus. And uh, that is what we're seeing at the moment with Comet Atlas. Uh, we can see uh, the coma. Um, its name is actually an acronym for the, you know, the robotic survey that discovered it. Uh, the acronym ATLAS uh, stands for Asteroid Terrestrial Impact Last Alert System. So it's a system, a robotic system for looking uh, for near-Earth objects, um, particularly asteroids. But of course, anything well, like an asteroid. Works. Yeah, it does. It's not found an asteroid this time, but it's a comet. But comets, uh, like asteroids, move relatively quickly through our skies, mm. uh, especially if they're near. And that's uh, what you know is the is the the, the threat, the basically the trigger for uh, things being recorded. So it was back in December uh, when Atlas was first uh, observed. Um, it. Actually, yes, it was the 20, 28th of December, so right at the end of 2019. And I should give you the technical name. Comet Atlas is actually C2019Y4. Uh, that's its formal designation. But usually with comets, uh, they take the name of the discoverer, hence Comet McNaught, discovered by Rob McNaught. Um, and since this was discovered by a robot, it gets the robot's name, which is Atlas. So it's uh, it was faint back in in December, but what has alerted people, and the reason really why we're talking about it, is it's actually brightened quite rapidly. Um, and that's, you know, encouraged people 
to wonder whether we will get um, a spectacular display. Uh, and actually, the, the astronomy world is a bit hungry for that sort of thing because <laughs> there's not been much, uh, certainly nothing like McNaught. Uh, Comet Lovejoy back in 2011 was, was very bright. Uh, and uh, seven years ago, um, there was a comet called Panstars, named after another uh, asteroid detection system, uh, which was uh, was visible after sun, sunset uh, in the western sky. But, you know, these... These comets, um, certainly McNaught was was very spectacular. Uh, the the other two I've just mentioned, Lovejoy and Panstars, weren't so much so, but they they created a lot of interest because they were naked eye visible. That's the point. You know, you can see it with the unaided eye. So, and that's so the, the, there's no way of predicting how bright this one might get. Exactly. But the exactly. the hope is that it will be. Exactly. At the moment, it's little more than a hope. Um, I, I think you and I will probably keep an eye on this uh, for the, the podcast. Uh, it gets closest to the sun, if I remember rightly, on the 31st of March. Sorry, May, 31st of May. Uh, so it's still got a, you know, a couple of months to go uh, to brighten up. It's, uh, it's still fairly well out in the solar system. Uh, it's, it's when comets pass their closest to the sun that they typically get brightest because that's when they go past the sun all this stuff comes off the comet the plasma and the and the dust and that then forms a tail which stretches actually not behind the top the comet the, the tail stretches away from the comet in the direction opposite to the sun mm. it's a bit peculiar uh, it's because the solar radiation is the pressure that's pushing the tail outwards it's not like a tail streaming behind something as we'd expect you know with a rocket or something like that it's actually uh, the tail direction is dictated by the direction of the sun so what it means is that as they leave the solar system often if they do have a tail the tail's actually pointing the yeah, direction that they're the going sun. Yeah, oh, yeah, 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 that's right, away from the sun. Away uh, from the sun. It prompts an interesting question. As it sort of does its turn around the sun, does the comet turn or does the tail just spin around the, the comet? Uh, well, yeah, that, so the, the, the comet itself is probably rotating anyway, independently yeah. of all this, and we sometimes see that with... Uh, very detailed images of the centre of, of comets, the centre of the, the coma, the head of the comet. You can see uh, almost like spiral structure in it as the comet's rotating and it's got jets of material coming off it and they turn into a like a, you know, a Catherine wheel a, 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 in the firework world. You get these spiral jets of material. So uh, you're right, though, that uh, the tail itself turns away from the sun, but that is what gives the tail its curvature because, um, you know, the, the particles or the, the, the gas in the tail is heading off in a particular direction. The source of that material changes direction, and so what you get is a curve a curve in the tail. And a Comet McNaught um, had this extraordinary curvature. I remember it arching over the western mm. horizon. It was oh, really quite astonishing. It was amazing. I, re I still remember it so vividly. Yeah, uh, and it was just such a thrill. And, and like you'd go out at night and you'd just glance up, and there it was. It was just, it was so, it just dominated the skyline for, for yeah. a, a so, good while, too. Yeah, it did. That's right. Now, now you and I are now sounding like a couple of old men reminiscing about the great <laughs> things of the past. Yes. Uh, which is not the, um, well, not necessarily the, <laughs> the, the purpose of this, um, this segment. But uh, just to mention that at the, at the comet's closest, it will be about 38 million kilometres. That's kind of 23 or so million miles uh, from the sun. And uh, we expect from that, uh, you know, a big increase in its in its luminosity. So it will uh, it will brighten up. There's, uh, so it seems about, almost certain that it's going to brighten up. Oh, good. About um, half an AU. Uh, well, no, they use 50 million. There's a very naughty oh, so, cat here that's eating I can, the... I can hear something going yeah, on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, all right. I'm just prodding him to make him behave slightly better. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's eating the furniture. Oh, they scratching do that. It, you know, yeah. like they do. Mm. He's got a soft spot for the lounge in this. All right, so... Yeah. The, <laughs> Sorry about that. The, slight digression. The there. possibility of this becoming decently bright is is not confirmed, but hopeful. It is. I mean, it, it, you know, I suppose if we've got something that looks good in binoculars, then you've got something 
uh, worth talking about. If it gets to naked eye brightness, so you, all you've got to do is look up uh, in the right direction and see this fuzzy patch, then it's it's getting to be a big story. And if it develops a tail stretching halfway across the sky like one of the uh, comets, uh, I can't remember, was that Kahutek or Hayek? Kutake, I think it was called. Um, that had a tail that was really very dramatically long. Mm. Uh, if it does that, then we're, you know, with it paid dirt. Yeah. So um, the message at the moment is keep an eye on it, and um, we will try and bring the news to you as it arrives. Indeed. Um, and and you, you mentioned it earlier on in 1910, um, you know, they, the arrival of uh, Halley's Comet, um, the world sort of panicked at the possibilities of uh, disease and pestilence and of course when was when was uh, this latest one found Fred yes that's right isn't that extraordinary I was just, I thought the same thing when we were when we were having that conversation that um, you know uh, uh, over um, over thousands of years of human history comets have always been regarded as portents of doom mm. as, as bad omens um, it, and it's a bit strange because it's not obvious I, I suppose uh, it could it could be terrifying if you had a bright object in the sky that you know seemed to be have a tail and heading towards you or something that might um, actually impart panic. Uh, just as an aside here, though, Andrew, um, two former colleagues of mine, uh, Bill Napier and Victor Klub. In fact, I used to work for Victor at the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh. Uh, they they were among the first to recognise that the Earth has been bombarded by asteroids and probably comets too. And they uh, did a lot of research on Comet Enke, which is a comet that may have had fragments that have impacted the Earth. And they linked that the fact that there were real horrors happening on Earth because of impacts from comet fragments uh, to the uh, you know the tradition that comets are, are bring, bringers of of bad news, uh, so um, that the, there might be a physical history of why uh, we've always regarded comets as bad omens. But yes, it is remarkable that in the COVID-19 era, we have a comet uh, that is going to grace our skies, I hope. Um, we, we don't see it as a bad news story now. No, it no. Keeps the business for a start. It's just a sheer coincidence that the illness is COVID-19 and the comet is C2019. <laughs> just a coincidence. Yes, that's All right. right. <laughs> uh, but we will keep an eye on that. There'll be more to tell real soon. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Once again, I'd like to recognise our patrons for signing up and putting a few dollars a month into the kitty to keep our podcast alive. Uh, you are wonderful, wonderful people. Uh, really appreciate it. Uh, we, we're obviously aiming to uh, to sign up more patrons, but it's not mandatory. We, but we do uh, we do particularly want to recognise those who uh, who are enjoying the podcast enough to want to volunteer some some money in the bank. So uh, thank you for that. If you're interested in doing that, Patreon.com/spacenuts is the site. Patreon.com/spacenuts, and uh, yeah, it's just fantastic that you um, you feel that strongly about the podcast. That you, uh, you want to contribute financially and uh, we, we say it so many times but we re really uh, do appreciate you very, very much. Uh, don't we, Fred? Uh, absolutely. No, it's, uh, yeah, it's fantastic to, to have people who are prepared to do that. Mm. Now, um, maybe NASA should have thought of signing up some patrons to fix <laughs> the InSight lander because it's had to figure out how to fix itself. Now, uh, a little while back, you and I talked about the, uh, the fact that it was trying to do a drilling operation and the drill got stuck and they didn't have a solution. Well, they came up with one. It's... Um, <laughs> It's as it's as classy as a plumber unblocking a pipe, in my opinion. This is this is awesome. It, absolutely. Um, so the story is uh, NASA's Insight rover on Mars. It landed on the uh, sorry, it did land on the planet. Yes, in uh, November uh, 2018. So it's been there rather more than a year. Uh, and you remember that what Insight is all about is. Uh, two big main instruments, a, a seismometer to listen to Mars quakes, and we've actually talked about the successful uh, detection of Mars quakes on the planet, um, <clears throat> which is, is all 
um, you know, giving us in, giving us insights, of course, which is why it's called that, uh, into the interior structure of Mars. But the other big experiment was the thermometer. To lower a thermometer, um, I think it goes down um, about four meters, something like that. That's the idea into the Martian soil. Uh, this is basically uh, a, a, a drill that's got all the delicate equipment inside it. It's technically called a digging probe. Uh, and if you think of something about, I don't know, 35 centimetres long, 15 inches or, or thereabouts, uh, it's it, uh, th that sort of length, but maybe a, an inch or so in diameter, 25 millimetres, um, it's probably got a spike on one end and basically it's very cleverly designed so that it uh, it sort of vibrates its way down into the soil. Um, the idea was that uh, you, you would um, give it, you, you can give it an individual number of strokes um, to, uh, I think there's a weight inside it. I think that's how it works. Uh, that kind of a, a bit like the old pneumatic drills that people used to use to dig up roadways, where there's a, a, a basically a hammer inside it that hits the top of a uh, that hits the top of the of the drill bit, the, the sharp bit on the end, mm. and it's the impact that actually gives the you know the impetus to to make a hole in whatever it is. So it's a very similar like a pile uh, driver. To that, yes, only a, perhaps a slightly gentler process because you're you you know you're talking about putting delicate instruments down. Mm. So the the story is uh, which we've rehearsed many times. It actually got stuck uh, not very far down into it, and in fact, I think we mentioned too that probably a couple of months ago um, it actually bounced out again, and you know uh, they were worried that they weren't going to be able to get it back in the hole because the the probe sort of popped out and tipped over slightly. Um, so the, the, the problem was always that you don't really know what has made it stop, why it's stuck. Is there a big slab of rock uh, blocking the, the way down? Or is, there, uh, is it a problem of the, uh, the, the, the mole itself, which is the technical term for this probe, uh, not being able to grip the soil um, uh, around the edge in order to give it some leverage? Uh, which is another, you know, fairly viable possibility because Martian soil is not like soil on the Earth. Um, anyway, the problem has been for long that it wasn't actually working at all. And people did talk slightly, I think, slightly jokingly about giving it a clout with the with the, the hammer. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a shovel, a shovel, really. Um, uh, insight. Um, like its predecessor, uh, Phoenix, which is a very similar design. Uh, Insight has a robotic arm, uh, and on the end of it, there's this scoop, it really is, but it, it looks a bit like a, a tiny little backhoe shovel. Mm. So people talked about that, but they're very worried about doing that because out of the top of the, the mole itself, the probe, comes all the wiring that connects it to you know to the to the rover yeah you can, uh, sorry, you can see that quite clearly in the photograph that they've um yeah know, that's right taken. There's a, there's a, there's a, there is a, a nice nasa picture showing exactly that you can see the probe you can see the wiring coming out of it and in this particular photograph you can also see the backhoe shovel which apparently has been used to give it a good um you know a good slug a good old-fashioned um, thump a thump yes that's right mm. uh uh, which um, seems to have done the trick. Yeah. Uh, I, so... think it's, I think it's hilarious. <laughs> what do, how do we fix this thing? Let's hit it with a spade. Done. Yeah, I can imagine right. that. I can imagine them sitting in mission control, and you know, you get the whole thing lined up. And of course, it wouldn't happen in real time because of the time it takes for signals to get there. So you're watching this in past tense, really. Uh, so you get it positioned. It would have taken ages, I suppose, and then you push the button to make the thump or whatever it is they do. And then and you sit there and go, oh, I hit it too hard. And you've got to wait 20 minutes to see what happens. Well, that's right, yes, and see what it does. Um, I think, actually, um, we're, we're perhaps um, having a little bit of oh, yeah. uh, artistic licence here because so. I think what they, what they actually did was use the, the, uh, this backhoe shovel to push down on the top of it 
um, just a, applying pressure. Um, and, and I think, you know, to try and get it doing yeah. its thing and, and, and get then get traction. it doing its thing. Mm. So there's a, some words here from, I don't think they're a direct quote from a JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratory spokesperson, but um, the text here, which actually comes from Popular Science, while pressing down with the arm, the operators instructed the mole to dig for 25 strokes. Uh, that's enough to make it sink down a couple of inches under ideal conditions, 50 millimetres, of course, for those of us here in the in the metric world. Uh, early images suggest that the mole has dug perhaps half an inch. It's about 13 millimetres, although mission planners are anxiously waiting more data before they declare the instrument saved. So the signs are good, mm. but um, the uh, the... You know, the, 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 the thing's not home and dry yet, if I can put it that way. Um, there is there's some very nice quotes from uh, one of the mission scientists um, uh, who's in, uh, involved with this work, whose name I'm trying to find. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I can't, um, I, can't, I can't find this person's name. But uh, there is... the, the, the they referred to this as Plan C, uh, the, the idea of using the shovel. Uh, but um, the, 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 the NASA or JPL spokesperson uh, talks about this as being their gardening skills, which are quite like, uh, because the you know the the idea is to uh, to allow the uh, the mole to, to 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 go all the way down. They've got to do things like covering up the hole that. That it's in. Uh, there's a few really interesting aspects of it. Um, if say goodbye to your credit card rewards, greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. If they don't get the mole down significantly further, uh, the conclusion will be that there is a rock or a stone down there blocking it. Yeah. But uh, the, the signs at the moment are, are promising, and I think it's no more than that. I, I like the other solution that uh, someone suggested uh, in terms of finding a, a, you know, a way of dealing with this. Let's ask Mark Watney. Mark, Mark Watney was the character in the um, in the book The Martian who got stuck on Mars all right. <laughs> and yes. had, to, had to solve all these problems to survive. So, yeah, I think there's the solution. Ask Mark Watney. Yeah. He'll, he'll figure <laughs> in, it out. Instead, instead we've, we've asked Tillman Spon, who is the principal investigator on this, <laughs> and that's the person who was making those quotes. Yes, and that's a good quote. Yeah, I like it. All right. Well, hopefully there'll be some positive news to share about uh, the InSight lander and uh, its uh, its robotic drill. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley with Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and being with a go. Space Nuts. Now, if you have not started following us on Facebook yet, uh, now is the time because nothing special will happen if you do. But it's a nice thing to do because you'll be able to keep up to date with not only episodes of Space Nuts but other bits and bobs that we put on the uh, Facebook page. That's the Space Nuts Facebook page. Or you uh, could join, or you could join as well, the Space Nuts podcast group on Facebook. And that's where Space Nuts listeners join each other and converse and swap stories and ideas and uh, some Sometimes people will ask questions and everybody will chime in with their uh, with their answers. It's uh, it's a fun group. It's growing day by day and it's a real thrill to have been um, partially responsible for putting you all together because uh, I can I can see um, much joy being had uh, between the members of the Space Nuts podcast group. So they're on Facebook. Of course, you can also follow us on Twitter, I think. I don't know. Uh, there's all, uh, I, I meant to say YouTube. I don't know why Twitter popped into my head. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, YouTube um, is where we've got a lot of uh, followers now, well over a 1,000, and the, the numbers are growing. So uh, if you'd like to subscribe via YouTube, you can do that as well. 
Now, Fred, uh, we've got some questions, but before we get to audience questions, um, somebody posed a question from the um, astronomical world to you in regard to COVID-19. Well, you're holed up at home because you're an old fart and you're not allowed outside. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, well, well, uh, that's um, uh, probably a fairly accurate description, actually. (laughs) Many people would agree with it. Yes. Um, <laughs> so no visiting uh, Fred at it's home. True. Very important. Do not go to Fred's place. <laughs> I think that I think fart must be an acronym there. I'm trying to work out what it. I'll, I'll <laughs> what, make one up Fred, while we're talking. Uh, wait a minute. No, um, Fred. Fred at residence um, today. There you are. Oh, that's the good acronym. one. That's Fred a good at Reddit. Yeah, I Fred don't think I can do better than that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, so I am at home. I'm working from home. Um, uh, it's not uh, it's actually a personal choice, really, because the you know, we're being advised by uh, our state government. Uh, if we uh, can stay at home, we should do. And I can. Um, I can I can equally go into the office, but um, there's, there's, there's not really any need to do that at the moment. I can do pretty well everything I need from home. So, yeah, I was asked by. No less a person than, uh, I think, the editor, actually, of the BBC Sky at Night magazine in the UK, uh, 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 which is um, both, I think, a a printed and an an online publication, Uh, a spin-off from the BBC Sky at Night programme, which, uh, of course, has been going since 1957 and still is. I used to be on it in the days when Patrick Moore was was, uh, covering it if I went back to the UK. Anyway, so it's something very close to my heart because... Mm. The sky at night is what turned a lot of us of my generation onto astronomy in the first place back in the 50s and 60s. So I'm always happy to, um, you know, help the Sky at Night magazine. So the question was, um, and I think this went to a lot of astronomers all around the world. Excuse me. How is the COVID-19 pandemic affecting your work? How is it affecting the work of astronomy, astronomers and space scientists? Well, we know because we've seen in the media that some some space science is continuing unabated. We've had uh, more launches of the uh, the, the, the OneWeb and uh, Starlink constellations, but some has stopped, like work on the James Webb Space Telescope. That's currently being postponed. Uh, the world of astronomy is is probably a little bit better off than many activities because astronomers generally, certainly here in Australia, we're very used to communicating online simply because we're so far away from most other places. Yeah. So it's it's very much uh, a way of life uh, to communicate by Skype or Zoom or other, you know, online facilities. Um, and a really good example of that is that uh, remote observing on our telescopes, both in Australia and overseas, uh, is standard practice, essentially, um, because it, it saves travel. We, uh, In fact, there's a, there is an, an interesting link here between another, <clears throat> excuse me, another calamity that overtook certainly Siding Spring Observatory back in 2013, the Wombolong bushfire. I remember uh, it vividly because it also would, threatened the transmitter of the radio network. I was yes, that's right. The, the um, Mount St. Cruach was that's right. in the Warrumbungle range, which is the radio transmitter there uh, on a mountain not very far from Siding Spring Mountain where the telescopes are. And that was a huge bushfire, 54,000 hectares. Um, It uh, swept over the observatory, thanks probably largely to the rural fire service doing their water bombing from the air. None of the telescopes were destroyed. The the lodge, the old Siding Spring Lodge was burned down. Uh, But so what that meant was that um, because of that um, bushfire, <clears throat> something that had been in the wings for a while was brought forward, and that was remote observing on the Anglo-Australian Telescope. Uh, and very quickly, it became a standard operation because the you know the uh, network links were good enough. Uh, astronomers actually suddenly realised that they could make their observations from their home city. If it was uh, it was only Sydney at the, the time to start with, but now we've got nodes all over the country that allow astronomers to work uh, from <clears throat> their, almost their office, sometimes from home as well. 
So, and that that's for the domestic facilities. Likewise, with the radio telescopes, uh, it's very much the case with overseas facilities too. Uh, it's also for us in Australia very commonplace that we attend meetings uh, over the internet, simply because they're often in Europe or North America or wherever. <clears throat> and um, many astronomers in this country, in Australia, belong to very large international collaborations um, like the RAVE, uh, you know, the RAVE collaboration that I've been closely involved with and another one called Galar. So it's very much a stock in trade. And I think it's true to say that many Australian astronomers now are like me, just working from home. Um, the telescopes, uh, certainly the last time I checked, our national facilities here in Australia, the Anglo-Australian Telescope at Siding Spring, the 3.9-metre reflector, and the various radio telescopes, I think they're still operating uh, with minimal staff <clears throat> and no, no visiting observers. Uh, but one thing that has changed, and this is outside our control, the... <clears throat> Excuse me, Andrew, I've got a frog in my throat. Would you just clear? <clears throat> Probably well, COVID I, I hope that's all it is. Yes, I do too. <laughs> COVID-19 getting its own back. Um, the uh, European Southern Observatory Telescopes at um, Cerro Paranal and La Silla, which uh, we in Australia now have access to because of the 10-year uh, strategic partnership, which was signed back in 2017, uh, that is a very important pillar of Australian uh, observational astronomy, certainly at optical wavelengths. But uh, those facilities have actually suspended their science operations, uh, and it's all about protecting staff. Uh, so there aren't going to be any... I think that's already come into practice. If not, it's, it's going to happen very soon, that there won't be any more <clears throat> scientific operations taking place there. So people who've got time awarded on those telescopes, um, we don't know quite what the situation will be, whether they will lose that time permanently and have to reapply or whether there'll be some sort of compensation my guess is that they will have to reapply because that's what happens if you get bad weather you just yeah. lose your time yeah uh, and you've got to start again so that's perhaps one of the biggest uh, effects of the coronavirus we um you know our thoughts are of course always with people who are more directly affected thousands of tens of thousands of people stand to lose their jobs and have lost their jobs in Australia, as with many other countries. Uh, at least so far, so good that um, uh, astronomers, often astronomers are on fairly short-term contracts, so there might be long-term consequences of the virus, particularly with universities that rely for a lot of their income on overseas students, um, because that has dried up as well. Yes, so, we've seen that. Even in Dubbo, where we, yeah. have, we have a university campus and students are not going in. So it, it, it's, it, it's getting down into the real depths of society and um, uh, causing all sorts of mayhem. But, um, yeah, uh, no end in sight at this point in time, which is... Well, uh, yeah, we big... will get through it. Oh, um, for sure. But... There's no doubt about that. But yeah. it is, it's a very, you know, it, it's comparable with... I kind of think of it as World War Three, actually, because it's going to have that sort of effect on people. Yes, indeed. Mm. All right. Uh, let's um, answer a couple <coughs> of questions from the audience. This question comes from Josh Vince. As I understand in uh, the theory of oscillating universe theory, uh, it would state that our universe is existing between a bang and a crunch, which could be the first or the nth. Well Oh, the nth, yeah. The nth. Uh, I have read that the cosmic wave, uh, background wave radiation data shows that we are in fact just expanding until a heat death. What would legitimise the oscillating theory? What creates this theorised crunch? Could it be from the supposed nature of dark energy where it is both repulsive and attractive? Just like us, Fred. Uh, if so, how would it start to become attractive? How would it start to become attractive through the pull of the universe uh, back into one dense spot? I'm clearly not a cosmologist, but this theory and the nature of dark energy really blows my mind. Apologies if this is a nonsensical inquiry. Thanks, Josh. It's a non-nonsensical inquiry. I, I venture to say. Absolutely. It's a great question. And Josh, we apologise that it's taken us uh, till now to get to your question because you posed this back in July last year. So I hope you're still listening. Um, but if not, <clears throat> this might be of interest to other people. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, the, uh, 
Yes, it, it, it was. Particularly during the 1970s, we were, in the world of astronomy, convinced that, or the expectation was, that while we could measure the current expansion of the universe, uh, if you could look further back in time in the universe, we expected that we'd find a universe that was expanding more rapidly because the expectation was simply that the universe's expansion would slow down. We knew that it had been expanding <clears throat> for, you know, 13 or 14 billion years. The best guess we have at the moment is 13.8 billion years. Uh, so that expansion is well charted. But what was a big question at that time in the 70s and 80s is how is that varying over time? Uh, is it slowing down as we would expect? Why would it, we expect it to slow down? Because the universe is full of stuff, and that stuff all has gravitational potential. So we would have expected the galaxies and all the rest of the stuff in the universe to act as a break on the expansion and slow it down. And in fact, as exactly as Josh mentions, one of the theories that was quite popular in the 70s was the idea that the expansion or the, the breaking effect of gravity might actually be strong enough to overcome the expansion and eventually turn the expansion into a contraction mm. and give us what was usually called the big crunch. <clears throat> one person didn't call it that. That was Brian Schmidt, uh, now Vice-Chancellor of the Australian National University, who always called it the, the Gnab Gib. Which is big bang, big bang backwards. Yeah, <laughs> which I was thought was still makes funny. me giggle. I love it. Yeah, it's a it's a great a great notion. Uh, more, more often called the big crunch, <clears throat> but um, it was actually Brian uh, himself, of course, and and uh, other competitors actually, uh, although they all arrived at the same answer in the United States, who back in 1998 realised that actually the expansion is increasing. Uh, and that's, uh, as Josh correctly uh, mentions, that's due to something we now call dark energy, an energy of space itself, which means that the more space you have, the more energy it has and the more rapid uh, the expansion becomes. So it's the accelerating expansion of the universe. So unless something changes, unless that is a temporary phenomenon, and we don't really have any way of, of telling that, we're just basically taking the assumption that uh, what we see now is what is going to continue happening, uh, then, yes, exactly as Josh says, the universe, the universe ends up with a heat death. Uh, mm -hmm. This is a very old term, actually. It goes back to the 1950s, uh, the idea of the heat death of the universe, that basically you just run out of star fuel, stars stop shining, and you've just got a lot of cold objects that basically have nothing, you know, there's essentially the, the, they're not heating the universe up at all. The universe becomes a cold, dark, and miserable place, terribly boring. Uh, uh, heat death sounds better than the boredom death of the universe, but that's basically what it is. So um, Josh's question really is, what would bring back the oscillating theory? Uh, it would take something pretty spectacular, but he might be on the right lines. If you could show that dark energy was a temporary phenomenon or one that might somehow reverse, then that might bring back the oscillating theory. At the moment, we, are, we have no idea what dark energy is. Um, we assume that what we see now, what we see is what we get, uh, that dark energy, you know, to the best of our knowledge, as space increases, dark energy increases. Uh, and that tends to rule out any thoughts of an oscillating universe. So um, it looks as though that theory has hit the had its death knell uh, with the um, the accelerating expansion, uh, but you know it's still uh, it's still an open question in, at some level because of our really lack of understanding of exactly what dark energy is. Mm. Uh, all we can do is look at the way it behaves, and the way it behaves seems to be that it gets bigger as space gets bigger. Okay, thank you, Josh. Great question. Uh, let's move on. This one comes from Paddy. I'm a roof plumber by trade and drive around Sydney quoting jobs and your podcast is my new radio. Isn't that nice? Thank you, uh, Paddy. Uh, my question is, what type of digital imager should I purchase for my new telescope that I was inspired to buy from listening to your podcast? 
Wow. Um, the telescope is a Skywatcher Dobsonian's 150mm slash 1200mm. Through the eyepiece, I can see Jupiter and its four moons, but would like to be able to take some pictures to record the experience. Yeah. Who wouldn't? Uh, where can I take the telescope in New South Wales where there is uh, no or minimal uh, light pollution? I think he's getting at there. Uh, look at the moment, uh, Paddy, nowhere. Um, <laughs> have a wonderful day. May the force be with you, <laughs> uh, etc. Um, okay, yeah, good question. I mean, uh, we've got the technology these days to take these uh, spectacular photos of just about anything. Uh, my little pocket camera, which cost me next to nothing. has got 40 times optical zoom. So I, I, during the um, bushfire crisis recently and then the dust storms, I took some incredibly spectacular sunset and sunrise photos through the, through the haze and big pink you know, billiard ball sunrises. I, and, and I did it all with a pocket camera. So um, I, I suspect that uh, he might only need one of those. <laughs> so you're telling him he doesn't need his, his Skywatcher Dobsonian, which... Uh, um, well, I he, can he, he probably needs that to get the close-up image that he can then photograph. Yeah. It's Look, it's a nice telescope that, uh, that Paddy's got. Paddy McManus, his name is. And sadly, once again, um, I hope Paddy's still listening because uh, this came in about three months ago, I think, or four months ago. Um, so thank you very much for your question, Paddy. It's a great question. Let me uh, just... Uh, uh, highlight something for your benefit, uh, Andrew, yep. uh, because he says, he, where can he te- take the telescope where there is no or minimum minimal Allen? Mm. And Allen, you co- correctly interpreted it as light pollution, but Allen is a real acronym. It means uh, artificial light at night. Ah. Uh, and so I, I knew it, it was something like that, but I just couldn't get my head around it. Yeah, that's right. No, it's just, you know, it's a good thing to bear in mind because occasionally we see references to Alan and you think, who's he? I don't know Alan, but it's artificial light at night. Um, so, um, I mean, Paddy might have already gone and bought a camera, and I, I, if he has, I hope it's doing well. A Dobsonian is um, – so this is a telescope that was invented by John Dobson – it's actually what's called a Newtonian telescope. It uses Newton's idea of a mirror, uh, a big dish mirror at the bottom and a, a tilted flat mirror to bring the light out to an eyepiece at the side. It's a very common uh, type of telescope. The Dobsonian bit is that John Dobson, um, who sadly is no longer with us, he basically invented the idea of a really crude telescope just made out of a uh, almost a, a wooden box uh, for the mounting uh, that you can actually basically just point the telescope in any direction in a in a very straightforward and simple way without any knobs and or you know knobs and bells and whistles and things of that sort. Yeah. Um, and it it works well. It's it's good for looking at the planets, for looking at stars. What it doesn't do is track on the sky. You can actually buy attachments that will let you do that, but then you're in a slightly different regime. So you're not going to be able to use it for taking uh, long images of nebulae and things like that, which is which needs a, a, a more com- you know a more complex mechanism for tracking on the sky. But uh, this is a six-inch telescope, a 150 millimeter. It's a, a you know a decent-sized telescope. Uh, I would have given my eye teeth for one of those when I was a youngster getting interested in astronomy. So it's well worth having. And you'll get, as as Paddy says, you'll get great views of of uh, the planets, Jupiter and its moons, Saturn's rings, and for that you can you can almost use your iPhone. Pointed at the eyepiece, or sorry, your smartphone, uh, or your, you know, your your pocket camera, um, because you're you you only need a short exposure. You can, you know, do an exposure in, I don't know, twentieth of a second or something like that. You're getting enough light from the sky that you will record the image. And if you're doing um, it at night, Paddy, the flash is a really good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> Quite so. Uh, that's that's what you need for taking pictures of the people who are standing watching you. Except there won't be any because they're all at home because it's of COVID nineteen. Right. So, so you might have to do your selfie with the flash. Yeah. Uh, for more complicated things, um, you, you're talking about 
uh, you know, a change of mount, telescope mounting. It's got to be something different from that. Uh, a Dobsonian won't let you do deep sky photography without the additional gizmos. Uh, and then you probably want to buy a rather higher level digital camera. Uh, but um, I hope that's helpful. Um, actually, you know, a, a standard single lens digital reflex camera uh, can be adapted to a telescope. Uh, often you can get an adapter. You take the lens out and basically, uh, sorry, take the normal photographic lens off, uh, take the eyepiece lens out and let the telescope itself be your lens. Yeah. Uh, that, again, is slightly fancier, but it's a good way to do it. Mm, yeah, I'd, I'd probably get a different camera so you don't ruin your good one or, you know. Well, it's that. Possibility too, yes. If you're going to take a, a shovel to it, as they did with the InSight lander, then yes, buy a second-hand one. Yes, indeed. <laughs> All right. I uh, hope that helped, Paddy. Thanks for the question. Uh, good discussion too. Um, yeah, could probably give some other people some ideas as well. Uh, Fred, that's just about it. Um, thank you again, as always. Stay safe. Doing my best, Andrew. Uh, the same to you too. Make sure you... Keep your, uh, you know, keep keep your distance from all the people around you. <laughs> yeah, oh, look, they've defined radio as a um, um, uh, a necessary service. So. Yeah, yeah. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. <laughs> you, you do it for pleasure anyway. Yeah, so. I do. I do. Yeah. Um, but anyway. Uh, oh, and don't forget um, uh, you, you, the Space Nuts shop, bytes.com/spacenuts. That's B-I-T-E-S-Z. Um, there's all sorts of things there. Fred's new book, my new book. I think, uh, which is available for pre-order, the Tyrannian Enigma and Cosmic Chronicles. Uh, and and uh, Hugh assures me that he's now got the logo sorted out for the new polo shirts, and I think there are caps. And uh, so pop along and have a look. Woo-hoo! Um, because I've got such a great computer, none of the graphics work, so I can't see them. Damn. I'll try a different <laughs> computer one day. Uh, but, yeah, uh, bytes.com slash Space Nuts. So you'll find the Space Nuts shop there, as well as all our episodes, as well as uh, uh, the little um, um, interface where you can send us questions. You can do that through the, the website as well. Uh, and thank you for joining us. Thanks for your input. Thanks for, um, you know, continually supporting Space Nuts. It is so greatly appreciated. And thank you, Fred. We'll talk to you again next week. I look forward to it very much, Andrew, and uh, stay safe and stay well. Indeed. Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large, and from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks again. We'll see you next time. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.